Blog Talk Radio. Now, we don't blame people for that. 
a lot of people over the years have been trained to believe that crisis prevention begins at the moment that a child starts becoming escalated or aroused. Somehow, that became what people believed crisis prevention is. So this is really an issue not only of timing, but of training. If we train people to believe that crisis prevention begins at the moment that a child starts becoming escalated or aroused, then that is the moment they will be focused on in the actions that they are taking to keep it from becoming a full-blown crisis. But the reality is that restraint and seclusion occur at the end of a sequence of events. Let me emphasize at the end of a sequence of events. And here's the sequence. Um, the sequence of restraint and seclusion begins with an expectation that a student is having difficulty meeting. That's early. A student is having difficulty meeting a particular expectation. In the CPS model, we call that an unsolved problem, also known, by the way, as a problem that has yet to be solved, also, by the way, known as a problem that is waiting to be solved. Why is that student still struggling and perhaps becoming escalated about that problem? Because it's not solved yet. So um, certainly one of the earliest points at which we could intervene, if we're looking to reduce or eliminate restraint and seclusion, is by identifying the expectations a student is having difficulty reliably meeting and either solving those problems proactively, putting them on hold proactively, because you can't solve all of them at once. And once again, in the parlance of the CPS model, you are now early. And as I always say when I'm presenting this material, um, if that's what we were mostly doing in places where kids with concerning behaviors hang out, which is to say pretty much everywhere, then there would really be no need for restraint and seclusion. And just to go slightly off topic here, also no need for detention, suspension, expulsion, paddling. What this tells you is that that's not what is mostly being done. What is mostly being done? What is the prototypical adult first response when a student is having difficulty meeting a particular expectation yet again? Insist harder. Push the kid harder. Founded on the belief that somehow pushing kids harder to meet expectations you already know they can't reliably meet elicits better performance. Got to tell you, I've never seen that be the case. Certainly not with kids who are prone to concerning behavior. You push those kids harder to meet expectations you already know they can't reliably meet. You are not going to elicit better performance. You are going to elicit concerning behavior. Um, concerning behavior that, by the way, communicates 
that the kid is having difficulty meeting that expectation. In other words, the concerning behavior actually communicates to us something we already knew. The kid cannot meet that expectation. I want you to notice something very important about behavior, concerning behavior. Late. Something else to know about concerning behavior is that interventions that are primarily focused on modifying concerning behavior are interventions that are focused on what's late. Well, you don't want to be late. Perhaps the key theme of this particular EPS um, podcast is don't be late. Um, concerning behavior is late. If the kid's concerning behavior, what we in the CPS model call of the unlucky kind, screaming, swearing, hitting, spitting, kicking, biting, throwing, destroying, running. The adults in the kid's life, especially if this is at school, but also everywhere else, are going to come to the conclusion that the kid is becoming escalated. And now, very late in the game, their crisis prevention, but really crisis management training, kicks in. What are they going to do? They're going to try to de-escalate the kid by whatever means, whatever program they were trained in, teaches them to do it. I want to repeat myself. You are now very late. And if you are very late, how could this possibly be crisis prevention? Nope. I don't care what they call it, it's crisis management. When our de-escalation efforts fail, and by the way, do I think it's good for staff in schools to know how to de-escalate? Yes. Do I think they should almost never be using that training? Yes, when they're late. When their de-escalation efforts fail, then comes restraint and seclusion. You are now very, very late. Like I said, restraint and seclusion occur at the end of a sequence of events that begin with an expectation a student is having difficulty meeting and is followed by a concerning behavior that communicates that the student is having difficulty meeting that expectation. Now, here's, here's the thing that I've always been puzzled by, there is the belief in many circles that restraint and seclusion keep adults and kids. I am aware of no evidence whatsoever suggesting that that is true. And in fact, uh, in my anecdotal experience as somebody who, over 40 years ago, you would have found restraining and secluding kids on an inpatient psychiatry unit. Um, but also the data that I'm aware of tells me that restraint and seclusion is when we and the kids are more likely to get hurt. Um, we are now at the end of a sequence of events and cannot conceivably be in crisis prevention mode anymore. As you heard from the sequence, um, identifying and solving problems 
is at the beginning of that sequence. And it is at the beginning that we should be training people to focus on. Otherwise, you're just training people in crisis management. And if crisis management is all we're training people to do, they are going to be managing crises a lot. If we aren't identifying the problems that are causing the behaviors that cause us to think the kid needs to be de-escalated or restrained and secluded, if we aren't identifying those problems and if we aren't solving them, preferably, collaboratively, and proactively, then caregivers are going to end up dealing with the exact same problems over and over again because rewarding and punishing, de-escalating, restraining and secluding don't solve any of those problems. And we are, if we're not identifying and solving those problems, going to continue thinking about how do we keep this classroom safe. Now, just as a side note here, you know, this extends into how we deal with kids. Not only are we teaching adults what to do when it's already late, we're teaching kids what to do when it's already late, too. Let me give you a few examples here. Um, I find this to be fascinating. Um, One of the most common things we are obsessed with teaching kids to do these days is ask for help. Who who could be opposed to teaching kids how to ask for help? Not me. I think asking for help is a wonderful self-advocacy skill. Just one problem with asking for help, it's late. By the time the kid is asking for help, there's already an unsolved problem that they're asking for help with. So while I believe that asking for help is good, I think it should only be comprising about 10% of what we're trying to teach kids to do when they're confronted with a problem. What what should we be doing 90% of the time? Um, Helping kids identify problems, anticipate them, and solve them so they don't have to ask for help. Late. Taking a break is late very popular these days, I think perhaps thanks to PBIS. Uh, And I'm not talking here about the breaks that kids take in a planned way, work for 10 minutes, take a break for two, work for 10 minutes, take a break for two. Talking about the breaks we give kids when they just begin to struggle with a particular task or perhaps even just begin to become escalated over a particular task. What's very popular these days? Give the kid a break. Um problem with that is the fact that taking a break is late. By the time the kid is taking a break, they're already struggling with something. That's why we're giving them a break. Uh, another problem, taking a break isn't going to solve any of the problems that are causing the kid to need the break in the first place. I've worked with kids who've, who, are taking, who are getting 30 to 40 breaks a day. Not a single problem is being solved. 30 to 40 breaks on Monday simply guarantees 30 to 40 breaks on Tuesday. Taking a break is late. Palming corners, very popular, very late. When, 
by the way, do I think calming corners are a terrible idea? No. Do I think they are vastly overused? Yep. When do kids access the calming corner? When they're not calm. When are they not calm? When there's an expectation they're having difficulty meeting. Uh, going to the calming corner doesn't solve any of the problems that are causing the kid to become escalated in the first place. Calming corners don't solve problems. Calming corners are late. I've worked with kids who are accessing the calming corner 20 to 30 times a day. 20 to 30 calming corners on Monday simply guarantees 20 to 30 calming corners on Tuesday. Am I allergic to calming corners? No. Are we overusing them? Yes. Are they very late? Yes. Finally, a lot of the coping strategies we teach kids, teach them what to do once they're already frustrated. Once they're already frustrated, do I have anything against teaching kids to take deep breaths, count to 10, figure out what color they are, red, yellow, green, blue? I'm not allergic to that stuff. I think it should comprise about 10% of the coping strategies we teach kids because that's teaching kids what to do once it's already late. What should we be teaching kids to do before it's late? Anticipate and solve problems that could cause them to become frustrated in the first place. Now, by the way, all of this is predicated on the belief that the expectations kids are having difficulty meeting are predictable. Fortunately, they are predictable. 99.999% predictable. The problems that kids are becoming escalated over are almost never first-time unsolved problems. They are often unsolved problems that kids have been struggling with for months, years. In other words, some of them are very old, unsolved problems. And I'm not talking about the chronological age of the kid. I'm talking about how long that kid's been struggling to meet that expectation. And the longer they struggle, often the more powerful the frustration response, that's what the concerning behavior really is, a frustration response. Some people might call it a stress response. That's fine. Some people might call it a trauma response, which is fine, except that not every kid who is frustrated has a trauma history. So I tend to stick with frustration response. That's what concerning behavior is. And the longer there's an expectation you're having difficulty meeting, there's an excellent chance that your frustration response is going to be more and more powerful because that problem still isn't solved. And therefore, there's an excellent chance that if adults are focused on either teaching you what to do when it's already late or learning themselves what to do once it's already late, you're a kid who things are late for very often. Thanks for bearing with me. I hope all of this is making sense. We need to redefine what is meant by crisis prevention. Crisis prevention and crisis management are two completely different things. And a lot of the programs that we are using to teach the educators who work 
with our most vulnerable kids. They might call themselves crisis prevention programs, but they're crisis management programs. Now, the latest development is something I've seen called trauma-informed crisis prevention. Um, Goodness. Everyone wants to say that they are trauma-informed, almost lost its meaning, which is a shame. Uh, I have a part of my definition of being trauma-informed is that you're not using power. As I've always said, the last thing you'd want to use with a kid who has a trauma history is power. So how can there be something called trauma-informed crisis prevention? If you're still teaching people how to restrain kids, number one, that's not trauma-informed. And number two, that's not crisis prevention either. Let me say this. Why is this such an urgent issue? Because of what we're still teaching people how to do. We need to get this right for the kids, their classmates, and their caregivers. Food for thought here in our first CPS podcast of this school year. Kim, I've said my piece. Any thoughts? Well, you're bringing me way back to my training from years and years ago. It was exactly how you described. It was all about focus on de-escalation and processing. That was a big word, right, that gets kicked around. And um, never forget when I figured out that I was focused on the wrong thing. Um, When I've been talking with some schools lately, I've been asking the question, do you like de-escalating kids? Is that like when you're in the shower in the morning, are you thinking, man, I hope I get to de-escalate some kids today, right? And it gets a little bit of a chuckle because as they think about it, they're like, of course not. And then I say, why not, right? Because it's unpredictable too. And so that's been a way to sort of um, get people thinking in a different direction. Like who, who wants to do that? We don't want to do that, especially if there's a better way. Um, and we can get ahead of these situations uh, by making kids predictable and figuring out unsolved problems. So I think it's a very timely discussion, and it's one that um, has had a lot of meaning for me lately. Indeed. Doing educators any favors by only teaching them crisis management. If we only teach educators crisis management, they're only going to be managing crises. And then they are sort of left to their own devices. And by the way, many educators have excellent instincts, but they're left to their own devices on the true crisis prevention part. And that, of course, is why Lies in the Balance did create a relatively new website, truecrisisprevention.org, that is filled with free resources on how to truly prevent crises by identifying and solving problems proactively and collaboratively. And you just, of course, raised another important point. No one wants to restrain or seclude a kid. Are we giving people the training they actually need for how to make sure that they don't? All right. It's time for the traditional part of our program. Is everybody ready? Uh, The call-in number is 347-994-2981. 
press the number one if you have any questions or comments about the CPS model or anything else you might like Kim or I to respond to. Kim, shall we turn, given that there are no callers, shall we turn our attention to the emails? I think that would be great. I'm sure there's a bit of a backlog. <laughs> there is a bit of a backlog. We try to work our way through them as quickly as possible. Here's one that came in fairly recently. Let's see how many we can get through in the next 20 minutes. Uh, this one says, our family has been working through Plan B techniques to assist our nine-year-old son. We have made great headway with a couple of his lagging skills and unsolved problems, primarily those related to getting off TV and devices when required, getting ready for school, doing his reading homework, etc. However, we're finding it tricky to navigate one of his most prominent triggers for his explosive outbursts, that of dealing with his perception of failure. For example, if he loses a game or gets a question wrong or his Lego creation breaks or doesn't go as planned or he drops something accidentally and then feels like an idiot, his words. We're unsure how to tackle this as the response comes so suddenly when things don't go his way or when he loses. Do we just sideline these in plan C? Uh, for example, discuss with him why we're considering limiting Lego for a little while small sessions of Lego. We're just really confused how to tackle this, as obviously we can't stop him from experiencing all of life's little failures. Some of those things are things he still needs to do. For example, draw a picture for homework. But the anger he feels about them can be so all-encompassing for him, throwing drinking glasses or whatever else happens to be nearby, hitting, swearing, screaming. Worth noting that his teachers have never seen him exhibiting the explosive behaviors we observe at home. Uh, he does say that he'll quickly snap a pencil or scrunch his paper up at school so people won't see him get angry. We greatly appreciate any guidance you have for us with many thanks and kindest of regards. Confused mum. Confused mum, let's see if we can help you out. Kim, want to take a stab at it? Sure. Uh, first off, I have some great hope for this family because they have solved some really tough unsolved problems, it sounds like, particularly when I heard about TV and devices. That, that I think, bodes very well for how um, remaining unsolved problems will go. So congratulations on that for sure. Um, I think that as far as the ones that are remaining that they're talking about in this email, there's some really good leads and some really good examples of when they see this play out, right? Um, what I would first want to tackle is how are we, well, let me back up because the question was, should we plan C this? Not necessarily. I, I wouldn't necessarily plan C something. Um, if you have a track record of things going well and these are next on your priority list, then I wouldn't use plan C. Um, but, you know, there are other reasons you would. Those wouldn't necessarily be reasons to do it. So if you're ready to tackle them, I would say go for it. So I think it's very much in the wording of how you're wording the unsolved problem. So difficulty dealing with perception of failure would be um, probably not as kid-friendly as we'd like to be and not as specific. And, and you gave a lot of specific examples, so maybe you are like actually adding some of those in because that would be a really great idea, right? So thinking about um, when he dropped something, um, that, that was one particular example, right? 
I think that one of the hardest part is figuring out what verb to use when we want to talk with him about solving um, this issue, right? So sometimes we like to say, you know, when he drops something, how would you know that it goes well, right? Because I get it's very clear of, you know, what you don't want to have happen. You probably don't want him to say that he's an idiot. You don't, you know, you don't want him getting angry. You don't want him, these things. So, so how does that go well? If he was perceiving failure well, how would you know, right? Um, and so hmm, this is always the hard part, right, picking this verb. What's, what could some examples be, right? So because um, we wouldn't want to say staying calm, which is also a temptation. I'm even tempted to go there sometimes. We wouldn't want to say that because <laughs> that's too, too far downstream, right? So how would we know when he dropped something, how would we know that it went well? You could go with um, difficulty just cleaning up what you've dropped quietly, right? You could go with that. I think Dr. Green probably has a better one than I'm coming up with off the cuff right now. But um, essentially answering that invoke, question. I would probably go invoke the if rule. There Ooh. are times when it's hard to come up with a verb. When I have trouble coming up with a verb, I go with if. Um, but I would be very specific about each of the things that this child is having difficulty handling frustration over. So it's going to be a relatively long list of unsolved problems. For example, difficulty if you lose the Foursquare game. Difficulty if the Lego doesn't um, fit together perfectly. Difficulty um, if you um, get a question wrong in the social studies homework. Um, so every once in a blue moon, when it almost feels like there's no other verb besides staying calm, since I don't want to put staying calm, um, I'll go with if. Um, and that might be what I do here, since I'm having trouble coming up with a better verb than that myself. Kim, keep going. Well, I, I take great comfort in that because I was definitely having trouble coming up with verbs. And I actually have to say, I don't think I've heard you talk about the if rule before, so I'm jotting down notes seriously as well. I think this will be helpful. In those, it, it doesn't happen very often, but, again, I'm always starting with that question, how would you know this went better, right? And if that's not leading you to a verb that's, you know, phrased positively of what you want to see, I think that this is a great way to go. Um, so just like we, we both mentioned, it's, there's a nice long list here. Keep them all separate, right? Decide which one you want to talk about first. When the emailer asked about use of Plan C, the example that was given was about limiting Lego, and I think we probably want to talk about that. But for now, what I want to mention about that is maybe Lego then is, is the priority of all these. I don't know, just because it came up as a Plan C, but um, possibility. So, you know, difficulty if your Lego structures break while you're building them, 
could be a way to go, right? Or if you want to slightly alter that to make it make more sense for the situation. And then I think it's about, you know, tackling that when the kid's at baseline <laughs> and, and not in the middle of building Lego, right? That, um, you know, trying to figure out what's hard about that, you know, what gets in his way. Um, you, it sounds like you have a little bit of a window in because he utters some things, right? He, he might say, um, I know this is when he dropped something, he said he, he might call himself an idiot or something like that. But you, you might be running into an inflexible and accurate interpretation or cognitive distortion, right, that he has this negative tape playing that as soon as he makes a mistake or as soon as his Legos break, his brain starts telling him, well, of course they broke because you can't do anything right or some version of that, right? That, if that's the case, that would actually very much help explain what you see after, right? So we're really after his perception of when the Lego doesn't go as expected or when it breaks, right? What, how does he perceive that? What's the story he tells himself about what, why that happened? And it, it does sound like you know, he's thinking it's some inherent fault of his as opposed to Lego breaks for everybody, right? And it doesn't mean that you're faulty in some way because it happens. So I think you've got a real opportunity to kind of, in a proactive moment, kind of slow this down with him and really figure out, like, what does your brain tell you when Lego breaks? Or what does your brain, try to, you know, try to convince you of? Or what does your brain start worrying about? That would be drilling strategies number four, I think. I don't have it in front of me. I know it's my favorite one, asking kids what they're thinking in the midst of the unsolved problem. And so really playing around with those drilling strategies to try to really get at, because it does sound like it happens fast, right? And there is thinking, there is perception on his part before you see the feelings and then the behavior, right? So really trying to pinpoint what that is, because then once we know it for sure, we can work on a strategy to address that. If it is a, um, a stinking thinking, right, a, a negative perception of himself, we can work on pausing that negative tape so that it doesn't just play and run rampant and lead to bad feelings and unhelpful maladaptive behavior, right? We can, we can definitely do some work on that. I'm dying it's, to know what he says. Um, yeah. You know, I've got some theories, I've got some hypotheses, many, but not all, of the kids who I've worked with who had similar difficulties were, and confused mom, I don't know if this is what you have on your hands here, many of them were very concrete, literal, rigid, inflexible, black and white thinkers. The kids I've used to refer to, and maybe sometimes still do, as black and white thinkers living in a gray world. Um, they often go into a game conceiving of only one outcome, winning. They often go into building a Lego, envisioning only one potential outcome. It will get, get put together perfectly. They often go into a homework assignment with only one potential outcome. Uh, it will be perfect. And so that's sometimes because they're very black and white. The reality is completing homework assignments, playing games, um, building Legos is gray. Pieces missing. Sometimes you do it wrong. But they 
don't even think about that possibility before they enter in. And so I'll be very interested to hear, I, I strongly recommend doing it one thing didn't go right at a time because I don't want to assume that the thoughts that your child has over one thing that didn't go exactly as planned is the same as another thing that didn't go exactly as planned. So it'll be one at a time, even though at the moment they all seem clumped together into these things didn't go the way he thought they would um, category, or mum, what you called his perception of failure. I don't know if this is all perception of failure. Um, we'll find out if your child just simply doesn't have any concept going in that things could turn out any other way besides perfectly, even though, and here's the fascinating part, it sounds like he has, like all of us do, um, a lot of experience in having things not go exactly as he planned, not go exactly as he wanted them to. So, yes, this is a critical life skill. I don't think plan A is going to fix it. Plan C is not going to fix it, although you may have to plan C some of them while you're working on others of them. But back to my original thought, boy, am I, as I always am, I wouldn't say this about anything else. I wouldn't say it any differently. I'm dying to know what is going on in his head about what's making these things hard for him. That's always where the action's at. That's always where good solutions spring from, what's actually getting in his way. Mom, we really appreciate you writing in, and we fervently hope that you are no longer confused, Mom, but now Mom who has some ideas for how you can navigate these problems. Kim, any final words on that one? Just that I was reflecting on a conversation I had with my 13-year-old about who's recently discovered Pinterest and thinks that everything that she's going to make from Pinterest will look exactly as it looks on Pinterest. <laughs> so I had the exact same conversation with her um, just this weekend. <laughs> there Doesn't you go. usually turn out. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing the way you envisioned it every time. Um, right. That's life. There's heck my life. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm sitting here at my desk at the home office, and I just looked at the pad of paper that sits next to my desk where I always write down things that I need to remember. Kim, you'd be surprised that I have a strategy for trying to remember things because <laughs> your experience of me is that I don't remember much anymore. But that's because the pad is always so full. Um, so I'm looking at my pad here, um, and I see sensory rooms written on it. And that's because and the strategy didn't work, I wanted to include sensory rooms in my um, discourse there over uh, de-escalating is not crisis prevention. The reason I wanted to include sensory rooms is because they're all the rage these days. But when do kids get sent to the sensory room? When it's late. When it's already late. Sensory rooms don't solve any of the problems that are causing a kid's concerning behavior either. So while I'll take a sensory room over a seclusion room any day of the week, while I'll take a sensory room over a restraint any day of the week, we are still swimming in the late territories 
we are still not preventing crises. We are still responding to them. So this is a good example of an instance in which being late might be okay, better late than never. I finally looked at my let's remember to do this pad and sensory rooms is written on it. And Kim, I will refrain from making a joke about that. <laughs> say that again. I will refrain from making a joke about this. <laughs> you you can make a joke about it if you want to. Um, <laughs> Lord knows you have before, so go ahead. <laughs> I think people would be interested to know that when we do our meetings, I'm always making sure, like, if you're not on time, that I tell you, because on time is also tough for you. So. <laughs> And now let me respond to that joke. <laughs> um, never mind. There's no reason to respond. Here's the deal, Kim. The next email is going to take me about three minutes just to read it, which means we will only have one minute to respond to it. And I don't want to only take one minute to respond to it. So I think we should respond to it the next time. Um, in which case, we are going to uh, podcast for September short by a few minutes. Any final words before we um, call it a day for today? Yes, I want to make sure that people know that our free Children's Mental Health Conference is coming up on Friday, October 27th. You can register for that conference on our website or if you get our newsletter, we're sending links in that too. Social media will also have ways to register um, we've got quite a lineup of speakers already um, chomping at the bit to, to put this day together with us, and um, you can maybe speak about some of those names if you'd like to, but I just want to put that on people's radars. So again, Friday, October 27th, it's free, it's virtual, the Children's Mental Health Conference. It is going to be amazing. Um, those of you who check it out, are going to see that we have many, many legislators speaking, many of the leading authorities on corporal punishment, restraint and seclusion, the harm done by those practices, um, educators who used to restrain and seclude but no longer do. Um, it is going to be quite a day of people coming together to advocate um, for change and to reflect on why we're advocating for change. We wouldn't be advocating for change if these practices didn't do harm. We wouldn't be advocating for change if there weren't alternatives for doing things a different way that didn't cause harm. Um, that's why we do the Children's Mental Health Advocacy Conference every year, and that is also why we make sure that it is free. On that note, I want to apologize to our caller from area code 203. Just saw you in there, but we definitely don't have time to respond to you. Please call in first thing next time so you can be first in line, even though we're talking about something else first. On that note, Kim, I'm glad to be doing this with you again, and um, we're going to call it a day for today. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you.